I think, you know, that's the thing is that there's no longer a us and them or one or the other. Mm-hmm. The market is stronger and customer outcomes are stronger when fintech and heritage banking come together and work together. Yeah. And I think we're now seeing a genuine recognition that fintechs can accelerate some of, uh, you know, the big bank um, agenda items or strategic objectives. But also fintechs can use support and help from big banks with large customer bases and really trusted brands in the market. So we're seeing this nice flow and kind of integration together, so much so that we're now actually seeing equity investment coming from big banks into fintechs um, and a desire to bring them both together. Hello, my name is Chris. I am head of content at Nordic Fintech Magazine. And if lackluster banking experiences have got you down, I think it's about time that we change that. Join us for a captivating conversation with Nicole Perry, Global Strategy Director for Digital Business Growth at 11FS, where she will share her unique approach to digital transformation in the financial sector. Nicole has sharp insights and thought-provoking views, and she will share with us the secret to true customer-driven frictionless banking. Get ready to be inspired and learn what it takes to revolutionize the industry and how the power of understanding your customers' jobs to be done has the potential to shape the banking landscape into a customer-driven digital experience. We are certain that Nicole's engaging conversation, her knowledge of the industry, and wit will have you hooked. So, uh, Nicole, thank you so much for welcoming us here in your offices in London. It's, uh, it's great, great meeting you. Yeah, absolutely. A uh, pleasure to have you. Welcome, welcome to London. Um, yeah, really looking forward to our chat today and thank you for having me on. So are we. So uh, let's just, before we start, tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is that you do. My name is Nicole Perry and I am a Global Strategy Director at 11FS. I live in London, but I'm originally from Glasgow in Scotland. From Glasgow, right? So that's where the accent comes from. It sure does, yeah. Which it we, sure love. Does. we love it, by the way. <laughs> Excellent. So cool. yeah. yeah, some raspy Glaswegian to, to see us through this chat. Right, yeah. Okay, so uh, tell us a little bit about 11FS. Um, specifically, uh, we're a Nordic company, so uh, we want to uh, let, let the audience know what is 11FS, what's its core value proposition, and how does, does it differentiate itself in the market? Sure. So 11FS, um, we exist to change the fabric of financial services and we were built and kind of act and and work on the hypothesis that digital is different from digitized. Um, So we are a global fintech consultancy firm and we serve all different types of clients, banks, financial institutions and really helping them want to move from um, digitized to truly digital and that can be anything from building a greenfield venture to helping with digital transformation itself to building new products and services. And I sit in our global advisory team where we work with C-suite level individuals, stakeholders and decision makers um, to make those changes in in the bank. Right, okay, uh, let me double click on that. Digitize versus digital. Yeah. How do you distinguish the two? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question and and one, two terms that often very much are are interchanged, but but actually they are are fundamentally different. So the way that we think of digitize is that you are essentially taking something that came before um, and, and just making it digital. Um, so if we think about kind of Spotify and some of the examples around that, they moved from you know music being something you would buy in the store, um, you would like an artist, you would go and buy the product, you would own that product, um, and, and you know that was how music was done. And then obviously now Spotify, it's, it's a commonly used example, but it's one of the best examples of how it truly disrupted that industry. Because not only did they bring the experience online, 
but they actually fundamentally changed the distribution model and the business model around music. Mm -hmm. But when you think about banking, what we've done is take what we used to do in paper, or you know, sort of on paper or with people or ATMs, mm -hmm. um, and move that online. So your statement is now digitised, or you know, you check your balance in your app rather than uh, at the ATM. And actually, we haven't fundamentally gotten, you know, to a mass market level of being truly digital yet, where distribution looks different, the business model looks different, and customer experiences are are truly different and truly intelligent. Mm -hmm. Right, and then that brings me to my next question. Um, just a, a little bit of context: in the in the Nordics, uh, digital ID is is prevalent. It's in all the Nordic countries, and I, I know the UK has a, has always had a, a different take on digital ID, but uh, it's basically used for every single banking and government and state issued transaction in, in the Nordics. Now, that's great when it works. Um, I recently had my <coughs> stolen stolen. I had my my authenticator on the phone. I had to cancel it because that's connected to my digital ID. Uh, and that just created a, a chain reaction that basically has locked me out of my bank account for three weeks. Mm. I still don't have access to it, right? Wow. Now, the question I have is we keep hearing that banking is being disrupted, that transformation is taking over financial services. And yet I think a lot of us still have not experienced any significant improvement in the way in which we are served by banks. I'd like to take your uh, hear your take on it. What, why do you think that might be? Or if you disagree with the statement, please just. <laughs> no, um, of course. I mean, it's a great example because we have seen you know a level of innovation and disruption, but it's primarily at the sort of front end of that experience. So we've made huge leaps in discretionary spending, mobile payments, you know, giving customers choice at checkout. Mm -hmm. But actually, when you think about the end-to-end -end experience, that's where digital stops. And that's where, you know, again, we talk about the difference between digitized and digital, mm -hmm. is that actually, you know, to, to become truly digital, we need to make sure that every single interaction or event or scenario, just like the one that you've just described, mm -hmm. actually is friction-free. Um, and, you know, it's an experience that's great all the way through, not just at onboarding or not just, at, you know, checking your balance or taking out a new product. Mm -hmm. So I, I agree that, um, you know, we're maybe not quite at that level of, of amazing experience and truly digital experience quite yet, but we've definitely made some, some leaps and bounds. Okay. Um, right, so uh, I guess that as, as, a, as a head of strategy, uh, global director of strategy, uh -huh. you have your, your, your finger on, on the pulse on really what's happening across, across the globe when it comes to fintech. Um, is there any trend that particularly excites you? Oh, I mean, I could have had, I could have a list as long as my arm um, about things that are exciting to me in the market at the moment. But I think one in particular has to be credit scoring. I think because it's it's one of these things in the industry that has equal benefit for both the institution and for the customer. Mm -hmm. So credit scoring in the system is broken. It's outdated. It sees customers as just you know numbers on a sheet or um, you know arbitrary line items in a credit scoring model when. Mm -hmm. Actually, as human beings, we're so much more than that. We're multicolored, multifaceted, you know, individuals with different lives and different circumstances, and we deserve to be seen as that. Mm -hmm. And I think with some of the advances in sort of data modeling and the ability to actually score people on a real idiosyncratic basis is really, really exciting. And for the institution, you know, it drives down cost, takes out inefficiency, and most importantly, manages defaults. Mm -hmm. And for customers, what it will allow us to do is move to fairer lending, more responsible lending, and actually lending that correlates with good behaviour, which we don't get as customers today. So it's the difference between someone spending, 
you know, £4,000 in something because they're having a baby or, you know, splashing out £4,000 on a weekend in Vegas right. using credit. And at the moment, we're not re necessarily treated differently in those two circumstances. Mm -hmm. We're just treated on the amount of credit that we take. Right. Uh, so I think it's really exciting about, you know, how we might be able to move to much more individualistic views on, on credit and its customers and massively open up accessibility as well, access to credit. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people think it's a bad thing, you know, to have credit, but actually it's a huge part of kind of building your life and making yourself known as a credible and a credible individual to the bank. Um, and some of the fintechs that we're seeing come to the market with some of the propositions and new ways of credit scoring, I think are really, really exciting. Right. Um, that's it's very interesting that you mentioned that because uh, we've been keeping our eyes on how uh, credit worthiness is changing. Uh, mm. But it's not something we hear a, lo a lot about. We hear about better finance and the yeah. wealth tech and those sort of things. Um, let me ask you a follow-up question on, sure. on, on, on credit, credit uh, scoring. Uh, we've seen that some countries have taken more drastic measures to, to score the activities of the citizens and, mm. uh, and determine how worthy they are, not just for credit, but to a number of services from the state. Do you think that there is a risk that as the credit worthiness models change in the West, we might be getting closer to that assessment of you as an individual not just for credit, but for other things. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's definitely on a spectrum. And there's a kind of couple of things to say here, but the, the first I would say that, in my opinion, it should always be done with good intent. So we should be rewarded for good behavior, not punished for bad behavior. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the time, when it comes to credit, bad behaviors are executed because people don't fundamentally understand what they're doing. They're not educated in, um, you know, in financial services and credit well enough. Mm -hmm or actually they've maybe just not got the right support or information to make the best decisions in their life when it comes to spending money. So I think as, if it's done with good intent, yes. And then secondly, it's got to be about choice. So if I want the most individualistic credit scoring model because I believe that the way that I live my life you know, would result in, in a positive product experience and a product, positive credit experience, if I say yes to every single piece of data that's known of me to be used, mm. Then I think then I think that's okay, um, but the important part of that is making sure that customers know and understand what they're fundamentally signing up to when they do say yes. Right, right, okay. Um, let's let's go back to uh, what 11FS does. Sure. I think you're very well known for the thought leadership and the content yeah. that you produce and you put out uh, on on various uh, various channels. Um, you mentioned at the beginning that you also help clients distinguish between these digitized versus digital. Tell me a little bit more, how, how do you do that and, and, and who are your clients? So I would say the majority of our clients are large, very well-established banks around the world that have been battling with legacy and digital transformation for years. Mm -hmm. And there's been so many attempts to kind of turn the tanker around in terms of these huge organizations having to go digital and making decisions about architecture that's a bit of a spaghetti mess and you know it's been built on and over years and years and years but it's never actually truly been kind of broken down and, and rebuilt from from the beginning mm -hmm. so what we try and do is kind of offer an alternative to uh the um, the efforts to do digital transformation previously mm -hmm. so instead of trying to transform the whole organization we look for opportunities to take thin slices yep. of those organizations and you know, really understand well what's the growth opportunity in the market, right. what suits you as an organisation and how can you help customers, how can you satisfy their jobs to be done mm -hmm. and understanding that landscape and then using that as the spearhead for digital transformation. So 
not sort of transforming for the sake of it, but doing it because you have identified outcomes that will be positive for the institution and for the customer. Right. All right. Um, let's follow that up with uh, uh, talk a little bit about fintech. Mm -hmm. I, I guess it, this happened in the UK as well, as well as in other European markets, but we saw, we've seen changes in the way in which the incumbents have responded to mm. to the fintech revolution, as it was called at one point. So where would you put that, that journey uh, on at the moment? What's, what's the latest of what's happening in the, in the industry? Yeah, it's a great question and one that feels like it changes all the time, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you, you think you're kind of predicting what's going to come and then uh, a, a shop move from, from one of the providers, big tech or a bank or a fintech comes in and, and, and just changes the whole landscape. Yeah. Uh, so we at 11FS call this the banking battlefield. Uh -huh. um, and it's really, you know, trying to look at the question of what will happen first? Will the big banks change before fintechs can scale? Mm -hmm. And that's really the dynamic that we see playing out in the market is that mm -hmm. there's this massive um, impetus for change in heritage and incumbent institutions where fintechs are on this massive desire to to scale as fast as possible and I think your right attitudes have certainly changed there was an element of complacency uh, you know some years ago mm -hmm. about oh, fintechs will never make money they'll never get the right customers um, whereas now I think there's a genuine threat of competition that's felt but also a genuine desire to want to change the larger organizations and a recognition that things actually can be done differently you know we've seen multiple banks experiment with greenfield builds and digital offshoots and actually some of those have, have paid off right. you know you just look at jp morgan chase and the success that they're having in the uk you know making that big bet and doing it right and doing it right from the beginning with the right level of funding with the right understanding of customers with the right architecture ways of working mm -hmm. it can actually be done so I think the attitudes are, are changing and there's more of an openness right. to doing things differently now. Right. Um, it's funny that you mentioned that we, as you know, we had Nordic FinTech Week just a few months ago. Uh, and uh, one of our guests from, from BNP Paribas uh, approached me and said, Chris, there's something really interesting here. We have the FinTechs yeah. and they're wearing trainers and wearing hoodies <laughs> and we have the suits and they're talking. I know, I know, uh, I know. And it was like, yeah, you're right, actually. That's I know. We hadn't seen that before, at least not, not yeah. in Nordic, so... Uh, yeah, yeah. I, th I think, you know, that's the thing is that there's no longer a us and them or one or the other. Mm -hmm. The market is stronger and customer outcomes are stronger when fintech and heritage banking come together and work together. Yeah. And I think we're now seeing a genuine recognition that fintechs can accelerate some of, uh, you know, the big bank um, agenda items or strategic objectives but also fintechs can use support and help from big banks with large customer bases and really trusted brands in the market yeah. so we're seeing this nice flow and kind of integration together so much so that we're now actually seeing equity investment coming from big banks into fintechs um, and a desire to bring them both together right okay um let's let's talk a little bit about the nordics now the nordics as you probably heard is a it's a group of markets that are very hermetically sealed. Mm. They're very homogeneous. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of collaboration between the various markets, things like P27, that you know enable easy payment and transfer of money between the, between the markets. Um, I think if we compare it to the UK market, especially now that we're a few years into Brexit, where mm. at first we didn't know what was what would become of London, and we look around here and it's thriving, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's booming, and it's a very, very dynamic financial services market, perhaps much more so than what we see mm. in, across, across the Nordics. So in, in your opinion, is there anything that the UK is doing particularly well that other fintech ecosystems 
fintech, including incumbents and, 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 and startups, could learn from? Well, I think if we kind of take it back to sort of the birth of the Neobank in the UK, you know, that was born out of crisis, right? You know, a financial crash and, again, a desire to do things genuinely differently. Um, and actually welcoming that competition and having it supported by the regulator was such a healthy thing for the market. Mm. Because the competition wasn't just against the big banks, it was between fintechs too. Mm -hmm. And we had this cohort of neobanks that have now grown up um, and are actually genuinely being taken seriously. Some of them are on path to profit, some of them have actually made profit. So welcoming that competition, encouraging the regulator to be innovative, mm. to work with fintechs and banks, to really get an understanding of how do we how do we solve for customer outcomes better, I think is is absolutely key. And the kind of nurturing of talent in the UK, I think we do that really well. Uh, you know, fintech is on the map in terms of you know university education or practical courses, and you know we have a really healthy pipeline of of young enthusiastic people coming in, you know, domestically and from overseas. Mm -hmm. And I think there's just such a buzz here. Yeah. And that, a lot of that comes from the success that we've seen from some of the fintechs that we have, we've had. You know, there's so many amazing role models to look up to. Um, and I think, uh, again, the, the core of that is that stimulus of competition and that desire to just be 1% better every single day. Um, and, you know, consistently take inspiration from one another and, and trying to beat the market. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I would say embracing competition, encouraging it, working together, collaboration, which I know the Nordics are, are very good at, um, for me is key. Right, and it's interesting that you mentioned that it's not just banks and fintechs, but it's also the universities and the regulator all working. Yeah, in absolutely, absolutely. It's you know the whole of that ecosystem, and an ecosystem doesn't function if one part you know just isn't there. It's it's very cyclical. It encourages movement. It encourages growth. Mm -hmm. And I think you know we've done you know the UK government and and the regulator again have done a fabulous job of identifying all of those ecosystem parts mm -hmm. need to be strong in order for the ecosystem to be healthy right. and they've really employed effort into ensuring that we have you know the, all of that kind of integration and, and coming together right okay now Nicole tell me a little bit of what's the UK's perception of the Nordic market um, how does it seem from over here I think that we see the Nordics as being incredibly inspiring, particularly when it comes to sustainable finance and ESG. You know, living sustainably is such a huge part of culture um, in the Nordic market, and we're seeing that come to market with some really amazing fintechs that are, you know, genuinely driving brilliant ESG outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I'm really looking forward to and encourage Nordic fintechs to think about well, how can we bring that to the UK market and beyond. Because the sort of customer base in the market is much more open and kind of embedded already with sustainable behaviours, Nordic fintechs have had the opportunity to really test and learn mm -hmm. in terms of what products and services work and you know what's people's attitude and uh, aptitude for using these. And that provides such a competitive advantage and such a USP for Nordic fintechs mm -hmm. that we don't have here because we, we're not quite in the mindset yet of, of being, you know, that green transition. Right. Um, so I'd be yeah, really interested and we'd love to see what, what Nordic fintechs can bring to us here in the UK. No, that's, that's a fantastic insight. I'm sure the, the, the fintechs that, are, that follow uh, our, our media will be very interested to hear about that. Excellent. All right. When it comes to investment, to the investor community, we've seen a slowdown in the amount of money that mm. is being fueled into, into fintech. Um, in your opinion, what are the the implications of, of this 
sort of lack of available capital that we see at the moment, and, and what can be the opportunities as well uh, as a result of what we're seeing? Yeah, it's, it's a sort of funny one. There's sort of positives and negatives. I mean, you know, it was great to see that influx and, and inflow of capital and, yeah, you know, massive growth and massive opportunity and people being back. That was all really positive, but actually, I do question myself now about the kind of impact that had on the decisions that were being made in some of these businesses. Mm -hmm. When you have a runway of capital to burn and eat up and it's consistently coming, I do question where where we were founders, where businesses as disciplined as they could have been in terms of making growth decisions mm. or sustainable business decisions. And actually with that now drying up, companies are have to going to get tighter mm. and they're going to have to, you know, maybe grow at a slower pace. But actually that might be what the market needs in order to really establish these new players and make sure that they're here for the long term, not just for a burst of innovation. Yeah, okay. Um, we've been talking a lot about fintechs, uh, incumbent, traditional banking. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit now about the alternative banking that we see uh, yeah. emerging with so, so, uh -huh. so much impetus. What do, what do you make of all the, uh, all the what we've seen in the crypto space with its ups and downs, with its scandals, uh, but in the long term, uh, as we start considering value propositions from Web3 companies, mm. from decentralized finance, uh, what's what's your take on, on, on the future of that and how will it combine itself with yeah. traditional finance, heritage finance? Yeah. So for me, I think regardless of your opinion on or your own personal attitude towards decentralized finance or crypto or Web3, you cannot argue against the fact that the development of an alternative infrastructure, ecosystem, an alternative power dynamic in financial services is a good thing. Mm -hmm because we have been living in the same model with the same institutions and ways of managing money and the same power dynamic for, you know, eternity. And having an alternative is, 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 a, is a real positive for people that might want to do things in a different way. Mm. Um, so regardless of whether what your attitude to it is or not, I think it's a really positive thing. Now, obviously it's development of basically a whole new world and there's going to be ups and downs. And I think we just need to be careful in terms of how we bring people into, uh, you know, DeFi or crypto or Web3 and make sure that they're aware of the circumstances and the risk level that, you know, is at play when we're interacting with such a new ecosystem. Um, so if you look at FTX, um, you know, it's such a, it's such, a, I mean, everyone's talking about it, right? And the, the fear that I have about these kind of stories when they hit the news is that normal people will read them and just think that, oh, crypto's bad. Mm. When actually there's a lot more education that needs to be done that, that Web3 and crypto is not just about volatile currencies or crazy investments in mm. Bitcoin. There's so much more behind it and so much more potential. Um, so I think it's an amazing and inspiring place that we're going. It will take some time to get there. Rome was not built on the day, sort of all part of crypto's rich tapestry, I suppose. Um, and we just need to make sure that we're bringing as many real life tangible use cases uh, and talking about them as possible so that people do understand that it's more than just Bitcoin. Yep. Okay, and um, just to close, uh, if we were to make a prediction, what, what, what things that we see today like popping up in terms of trends would you expect to hit the mainstream in say five years? That's a very good question. I think we'll certainly see much more adoption of, of crypto and, and Web3. Mm -hmm. Again, it comes back to those kind of use cases and 
Um, I think we'll see uh, a merging of traditional finance and decentralised finance, what we like to call the DeFi mullet. So mm -hmm. FinTech in the front and DeFi in the back. Yeah. Um, and I'm really excited to see that because I think it will really drive adoption and it will also help the regulator get more comfortable with what's going on. Yeah. And then from a kind of wider consumer perspective, a more traditional finance perspective, I'm really excited to see the potential of open finance. Mm -hmm. So customers, the majority of customers really live in the dark when it comes to their finances and the sort of lucky few, you and I and fintech professionals, finance, finance professionals, we've got, we know where to find the right information, we know where to find the right tools to make the right decisions about our money. But a lot of people, you know, they don't have that. They, they don't know what exists and they, they don't know what the potential could be. Whereas actually open finance, if we bring that to consumers mm -hmm. and, and kind of help them make decisions and make them more aware, and at the same time financially educating them in what's available, I think that we would see much, much more positive outcomes um, for many more mass market customers. Right. Well, Nicole, thank you so much for taking time to speak to us and for sharing all those insights with us. You're welcome. And we are very much looking forward to seeing you in the Nordics, yes, hopefully in 2023. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, can't wait to be back. Thank you so much. All right, thanks. Thank you.